hard sometimes. I know on Sunday, especially after a big meal like that, and you just uh, you want to take a nap, or, or better, you know, as I like it, the nap takes you. You know, that's always so much better than trying to take a nap. It's when the nap takes you. Just don't do that behind the wheel. You know, I've had that happen once or twice. It's scary stuff. I don't, I don't push anymore like I used to. Don't do that behind the wheel. Well, I want to share a few things with you tonight, but what I'd like to do to start is I'd like to bring Beth up here and go back to uh, some of the things that she was sharing this morning in the Sunday school lesson about this uh, vision that the Lord gave her. And it's interesting because we never talk about this story, and I don't know the last time that we've discussed it. You can grab one of these uh, mics over here. And she shared that in the Sunday school lesson this morning. And as I was getting ready this morning, we didn't talk about it. I was reminded of that vision that she had. And I thought, well, Lord, this is interesting. What are you trying to say? So I want to give her another opportunity because some people weren't in the Sunday school class this morning to hear uh, what she was sharing. So go ahead. All right. He asked me to share this with you, but I first have to say that I felt the Lord strongly saying that he is going to start. There's going to be a massive visitation that's coming on us. We need to press in, we need to pray, and we need to be ready. I don't think it's any um, coincidence. The vision that I shared in Sunday school this morning happened 34 years ago this fall. I was 14 years old, and I haven't spoken of this vision publicly in probably over 20 years. And God put my vision on this man's heart, and he had no idea that I was going to share this um, this morning. So when I was 14, um, I think I was on the precipice of the Lord dealing in, and my call that he was calling me out for my life happened at a very, very young age. And I don't think it's a surprise that he has brought this vision to both of us. Friday night, we were in prayer here. And there was 10 of us, 10 or 11 of us gathered. And I want to encourage you. I actually want to challenge you to come when we have prayer. God is doing something. And I don't know about you, but we've prayed to feel him move. We've wanted to feel him pass by us. We wanted to feel his presence. So Friday night, I began to pray. And my prayer got louder, and my prayer got louder. And one thing I remember praying was God was calling us to arms. He's calling us to arms. And this vision kind of came back like a flood to both of us this weekend. So at age 14, um, I had a dream. And I woke up the next morning, and I ran down, and I said to my dad, who was a pastor, Dad, you've got to explain this to me because I don't know what I've seen. And he said, Babe, you've just seen something in Revelations, the book of Revelations. And I was in my bedroom in my dream, and again, I was only 14 years old, and um, I was in a full-on bridal gown, spotless white bridal gown. And the next thing I can remember is running quickly down our steps in our house and standing on the front porch in this bridal gown and looking up and the heavens were parting. And the sky was as a rolling fire, just rolling fire. And then it split down the center and the most beautiful, glorious steps poured out and our king was on his champion and he was coming for us. 
And I haven't talked about this vision for 20 years, but I'm telling you, whether God is coming back or he is on the move, we want to be on the move with him. It's vital that we be on the move with him. And I didn't share this part of the vision, but there was a second side to it, and Dave asked me to share it tonight. I also was dropped down into the pit of hell. And I remember standing there and looking around, and I could see Satan's throne, and I could see full-on debauchery for what a 14-year-old mind could see or know at that time. And there was just horrible things just going and going. And there was a lineup of believers and um, this lieutenant or person in, the, in, in Satan's army came up to me and had a gun in his hand and said, you're going to deny and have your life or you're not. And I said, I will not deny the Lord. And I heard a quick pop and I felt the most angelic peace that I've ever felt in my life. Because I was transcended and I was transformed into the presence of God. And what seemed overwhelming in the, the, the pit of hell was nothing and compared to what I saw when I got to heaven. And I was thinking about that song we sang tonight. You know, that darkness will tremble. Darkness will tremble. And that's what happened. And I can remember looking back and the sea and the multitude of believers was a vast number. I could never even count, never even understand, never even fathom. And the glory of God and his radiance was so warm and so inviting and so um, encompassing. That that day when I talked to my dad about that vision, I said, can you explain this to me? And he began to explain it to me. Two things happened. I was confronted with the reality of what's coming. And a call of God fell upon my life to do something about what I saw. And I've never stopped since that, pursuing, of course failing, I'm human, but pursuing that vision because I want the sea of numbers surrounding me. So you have uh, known me for about four months now, and uh, but I've been preaching a long time, and Beth will tell you, I'm not an end times preacher. I really do not focus on this particular area. In fact, I, I think I was sharing with Tom when I got here, I don't, I, I don't look much into prophecy, I don't deal with this area, but I'm telling you, I feel the Lord saying, get my people ready, get my people ready, and this is not a time to be playing games. You know, when we were younger, and some of you might remember this, those films, The Distant Thunder and, and Left Behind and A Thief in the Night, man, as a young teenager, those, those movies scared me. You know, that's a healthy fear. Uh, everything the Lord keeps impressing upon my heart is a, a, a sobriety. You know, I, I get serious about the times that we're living in. I used to have a shirt, and I, it's not unique. I got it at youth camp that said, get right or get left. You know, you don't want to get left. You want to get right. Now, uh, Joel Olstein says that he likes to uh, open his messages with something funny. And... Uh, I'm starting to like to open my messages with a nice, good sucker punch in the gut from Leonard Ravenhill. Amen, Chris? Yeah, we, we, we need that. 
And uh, I've been fed with quite a, uh, quite a bit of material here from, from Leonard Ravenhill. There's no shortage of material. I could probably open with this for, for quite a while. But he said something in, uh, in this uh, Sodom Had No Bible book. And I, I talked to you, I think, about this last Sunday night, that we need a baptism of holy anger. Holy, now, not our anger, but holy anger. And he said this, and he, to me, he says, it is a shocking commentary on present Christian feebleness. And remember, this is like 1970-ish. On present Christian feebleness that while in the first century, 120 men could move from an upper room closet and shake Jerusalem. Hmm? And now, 120 churches claiming an experience... A like experience of the Holy Spirit can be in one of our cities, and yet that city at large hardly know that they are there. Hmm. What happened? And he continues, in our spiritual warfare, the churches must be guilty of shooting with dummy bullets. To change the figure or the metaphor, we must be spiritually running with empty freight cars. But we don't want to be guilty of that. He says, and, and I, I, I so agree with him, and we're all looking back in hindsight now, 50 years, is my deep conviction that the end of the age is upon us. Things are going to develop more rapidly than any of us could anticipate. Can we look back and say that that is exactly what has happened in 50 years? Has developed way more rapidly than any of us could anticipate. And I believe that as we're living at the end of the ages, that the day is drawing near, and it's closer and closer and closer. And I believe we got to be ready. We have to be ready. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. It's no time whatsoever to be playing games. It's my conviction, my deep conviction that the end of the age is upon us. Things are going to develop more rapidly than any of us can anticipate. In light of this, we need to fence off our altars so high that to get to them takes a do-or-die effort. We're going to have to get serious, more serious perhaps than we've been. I do want to encourage you to come out on the Friday night meetings. And if you haven't been coming out, I don't want that to be a, a, a guilty or a, a condemnation thing for you. Today's a new day. Come on out. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. I do believe He's going to move. I believe he's going to meet us and he's going to hear our prayers. If the heavens are shut up as brass and we pray, he's going to send the rain. He's going to do it. So I want to turn tonight with you uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Lord impressed this passage on me this week as I was reading. I'm really going to, uh, to 1 Corinthians 10, but we're going to back up in, in chapter 9, verse 24, because this kind of encapsulates uh, the heart of the message. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Or as I said in the title of the message tonight, run that you might win. Run that you might win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. We've been hearing a lot about this self-control lately. 
They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable, they would play these games and they would run to get a laurel wreath. The Greeks would have a laurel wreath. That's what Paul is referring to, which isn't even like our trophies that you can put on your your trophy counter and they're going to last for a while. That thing's going to fade away. But Paul's saying here, we run to win. We're running to win an eternal, an eternal crown that's not going to fade away. So Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. In another portion of scripture, he says, I beat my body into subjection. If you ever get wearied from the fight and you get worn out, I remind myself of that scripture oftentimes. I beat my body into subjection. Not that we get into aestheticism and we sit there and with a whip and we hit ourselves in the back like Martin Luther did at one point in time before he came to this revelation of uh, justification by faith. The aesthetics, you know, he thought he was so bad that uh, he just had to continuously punish himself by, by beating himself and doing all these things to humble himself. And then he got this revelation of salvation by faith and grace. So he says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now that's a scary thought. You think, the Apostle Paul, the one that got turned on the road to uh, Damascus, how in the world could he possibly get disqualified? I mean, a lot of us think he just dropped out of heaven, you know, with wings and a halo. But he wasn't. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was a man just like us, a person just like us. And God did this work in him. But Paul had the realization that I'm going to have to be careful. I'm going to have to keep under my body. I'm going to have to be self-controlled. I'm going to be, have to control my will and my desires. Lest after I've preached to others, I myself could possibly become disqualified. And you say to yourself, Paul, what are you talking about there? And he says, well, I'm about to tell you. We drop down into chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And remember, he's writing this letter to the Corinthians. There are no chapter and verse divisions, so he's moving right along. He says, lest I myself become disqualified, and he continues right along in this letter. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. He's making things pretty clear here. There's no ambiguity in what he's saying. All, 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 all. Everyone was doing the exact same thing. Everyone had access to the same resources. No one could claim that somebody else had access to more than they did. Everybody was equal in this situation They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And then it says here, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Hmm. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. We preach an easy salvation today. Just come to the Lord get saved, and for a lot of people, it's just a get-out-of-hell-free card. We don't press the demands of discipleship upon them. We have a lackadaisical Christianity. We don't preach the whole gospel. 
The full gospel. We don't preach it because if we preach the full gospel, it's amazing as you read these letters how much Paul talks about putting off the old, putting on the new, having self-control, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, abstaining from the lust. And it's not just Paul. Peter says the same thing. James says the same thing as we've been reading in our Wednesday night study on James. This is all through there. Lest after preaching to others, I myself become disqualified or I become a castaway. Is it possible that we come into the place where we come before Jesus and we say, but Lord, did we not cast out devils in your name? Did we not do all these miracles in your name and have Jesus, our Savior, stand before us and say, depart from me, I never knew you. I, I wouldn't want to be in that situation before our Lord and Savior. People can walk out or say, that scares me. Maybe that's a good thing. We know that if we're in the faith, we have nothing to worry about. If we walk so that at the end of the day, we please the Lord in our life, in our choices, in the things that we do, we can go to bed at night approved unto God. But what does it say here? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Who was he pleased with? Two people. Two people. Joshua and Caleb. Of the whole generation, just two people. Paul's point is this. Just as God did not tolerate Israel's faithlessness and rebellion, so he will not tolerate the sin of believers under the new covenant. We're not preaching that. The church today needs to hear that. And we need to hear it regularly. God takes sin very seriously. Grace is not a license to sin. When we sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins but he would like us to put that stuff behind. Wherefore, seeing that we are compassed by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are these witnesses? The ones who quench the flames. The ones who stop the mouths of lions. The people that we're hearing about this morning in the book of Daniel. These are the witnesses and some of the, the saints that we know personally that who have gone on before us. They're in the cloud of witnesses. Let us therefore run this race with patience or run this race to win. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. So we can lay aside sin because also calling us to lay aside weights. What are those weights? Well, it depends. I would argue that they're, they're good and valid things that are drawing us away from the, the purposes and the will of God in our lives. And in such a time as this and in such an hour as this, there may be a lot of things that need to go that have been near and dear to us. I don't know if you sing that song here, All I Once Held Dear, Built My Life Upon. There's nothing compared to knowing you. Paul says, everything that I counted gain, I now count as loss. Why, Paul? Why would you count gain as loss? That I might know the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That I might know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection. Oh, Paul said, oh, that I might know him. Do you want to know him? Do you want to know him in a deeper way?
He wants us. He wants us to know Him in a deeper way. So God was not pleased with them. Verse 6. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Or the King James says that we might not lust. That word lust and desire is the same thing. That we might not lust after evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. When I read this this week, I I just opened up my Bible when I landed on this passage. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Does that sound like anybody we know today? Does that sound like the society that we live in? We sit down to eat and drink, and we rise up to play. Some of the other translations will expand that to say that they indulged in pagan revelry. They indulged in pagan revelry. Verse 8, Paul says, We must not indulge in fornication or sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Let's turn for a moment back to Numbers chapter 25 and take a look at this. Again, thinking about Ravenhill talking about the fact that we need a holy anger. A holy anger is an anger that sees the sin that's in the land, that sees the bondage that's in the land, that sees the captivity of the people that's in the land. And Jesus says, I have come to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. I've come to loose and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That is the heart of the Lord. And as His ambassadors, and as His hands and feet, He's called us to do the same thing. And we go out there and we see the sin, and we see the wickedness and the evil that's taking place, and a holy anger rises up within us. It's an anger that comes from the Lord that says, this ought not to be. It's an anger that Nehemiah had when he got back to seeing Jerusalem torn down. And why was Jerusalem in that condition? Because of the sin of God's people. And God gave them chance after chance after chance. And he finally decided to act and says, no more. When God acts, oftentimes it is without remedy. The day that Noah went into the ark and God shut the door, that was it. The door was shut no one was going to open that door. And when Christ finally decides it's time and He's coming, that's it. There is no second chance. I don't care who's preaching that stuff out there today, there is no second chance. There is not universalism that all are going to be saved. There's not annihilationism that at the end everybody's going to be annihilated. We need to get a deep vision and a deep understanding and awareness of hell and the scariness of hell and the fact that there is a world lost and dying and going to hell. We need to get that back into our hearts. We need to get that back into our churches. Oh, that the Lord would give us that burden, that vision of what it's like for a lost and dying generation to spend an eternity in hell and the lake of fire. Numbers chapter 25. Verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
These, the daughters of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Okay, that's nothing new. We know about that. We know that they did that a lot. That's why they get into trouble. Verse 4, and the Lord said to Moses, take all... Listen to what God says here. We're glad we don't live in Old Testament times. The Lord says to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. Okay. Who's going to go out and tell them that? A lot fell on Moses. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Take them all out and hang them in the sun, Moses. I want to remind you, this is the God of the Old Testament, but he's also the God of the New Testament. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the deeds that were done in the flesh. And Christ is going to render unto every man and woman according to our deeds, according to our works. So he says in verse 6, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. You ever feel that way today? Maybe you're weeping in the house of the Lord for the sin. And there are people out there just indulging sitting down to eat and drink and rising up to play, rising up in pagan revelry. Where is God? God's dead. Where is the promise of His coming? They've been saying that forever. And Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, they'll be eating and drinking. We could say, I guess, they'll be rising up to play and they'll have absolutely no idea until it's too late. While the people were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phineas, verse 7, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, he was of the priestly line of Aaron, saw it. He rose and he left the congregation and he took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. God liked the zeal, the holy anger that was in the heart of Phineas, that Phineas would want to stand up for the holiness of God, for the righteousness of God. I don't even think he thought about it. He just went out and he says, I'm going to respond. He didn't do that out of his own anger. He was doing that out of zeal for the Lord. And apparently God understood it because God put his approval on that thing. And Paul says, these things were written for our examples. Why were they written for our examples? That we would take heed that we wouldn't engage in the same thing, recognizing that we serve a holy God. We serve a just God, and He is going to have justice one day. And that those of us that are believers, we are called to walk a walk of holiness. We're not given a pass as teenagers to just indulge in all of these things, and then at 18 or 20 years old, we can say, well, we sowed our wild oats, now it's okay if we come to the Lord. Some have done that. Some will testify to that. I was guilty of that myself to some extent. And I'm not proud of that, and I'm thankful to the Lord that He accepted my confession to Him and that He forgave me. But it's not something that we want to play around with. 
The enemy will tell you, you have plenty of time to live your life here. And you can still change the road that you're on. But we don't know the hour of our visitation. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's not a problem between the Old Testament saying 24,000 and Paul writing 23,000. It's an approximate number and it captures the, the thought here. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test. No test Christ. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Let's turn to that quickly. Numbers chapter 21. It's good to go back and actually look at these passages rather than just stopping with Paul here and seeing what was going on. Numbers chapter 21. Verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient along the way. Do you ever become impatient with the way? It gets wearying. It may be the same. We can become impatient And the people spoke against God, and they spoke against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, and there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Here's the Lord's response. Remember, we just saw that he said, take the officials out and hang them all in the sun. Well, this is his response to the grumbling and complaining. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. That was God's response to it. But he did provide a way of salvation. Very strange encounter in the Old Testament. He has Moses make a bronze serpent, which is odd because the serpent in the Old Testament is always associated with evil. But in this particular case, he instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent, which I suppose was the antithesis of the serpents and the snakes that were biting the people. I hate snakes. I really hate them. That's like my worst nightmare right there. I'd be ducking for cover, and I think those snakes could probably fly too. There's snakes bad enough. A flying snake? Look out. You find a snake around, do not call me to kill it. You call Beth. She is the snake wrangler. I'm serious. She's killed three copperheads at our last house. And I can tell you, by God's grace and His mercy and His favor, I was out of town for every single one of them. I was. I had a legitimate excuse. I had a hall pass from the Lord. I was traveling. I was not there. She sent me pictures, and I was like, oh, oh boy, I hate snakes. This was a terrible thing that happened. And why did it happen? They grumbled. And Paul tells us, remember what his point here is. These things happen for our examples. He says, don't do this. Don't engage in sexual immorality. Don't grumble against the Lord. Snakes, flying snakes. I think of Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones. And he opens up that, I hate snakes. I'm with you, Harrison. I can't even imagine going into there. I would die of a heart attack first, which which would be just great. 
I just don't like those things. What's that? Yeah, I know, yeah. Now, I will say that there are other critters that have come into our garage, and she jumps and jumps back from them, and I take care of them, no problem. I'm like, you can take out the snakes, but, but not these things? And no problem with spiders or anything else that creeps and crawls, but those snakes, that's, that's it. Okay, let's get back to the Word. All right. So we must not put Christ to the test as some did and were destroyed by serpents, verse 10. We're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our admonition or our instruction. This is the second time that Paul says this. When you read the Word and you come to a passage, maybe it's 6 or 11 verses, pay attention to these kind of things that get repeated, especially if we have what we call an inclusio, where Paul will say something at the beginning of the passage, and he says the same thing at the end of the passage. And one of the good examples is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul opens up in verse 1, and he says, therefore we do not lose heart. And as he closes that particular passage in verse 16, he says the exact same thing, therefore we do not lose heart. In theological terms, they call it an inclusio, but it creates bookends on what he's talking about here. And so Paul is emphasizing this particular thing in this chapter. And as you learn to read the Word like this, these things will begin to jump out at you on the page, especially if you're not reading to just say that I read two chapters of Corinthians today, but you're reading to chew on it and reading to meditate on it. Just read a couple verses. Stop and pause. Uh, The Old Testament says, Selah. Stop and pause. So he says, these things happened to them as an example. God did this to them so that there would be an example for the generations to come. But Paul's saying, these things are written down in the Old Testament for our, our example and our admonition upon whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now think about where we are in the passage. What is he hearkening back to when he says that? Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. He's going right back to chapter twenty, back to chapter nine and verse twenty-seven, where he says, "Lest after having preached to others, I myself become disqualified, or I myself become a castaway." Don't you know that all who run, run to to get a crown, you know? So run to win, Paul says. Exercise self-control. Do this thing with all of your might. Whatsoever your hand findeth to do, do it with all your might. Do it as unto the Lord. So whoever thinks they, uh, they stand, take heed, lest they fall. And then he closes this out with, No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is what? Faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to what? To endure it. That harkens right back to what we talked about this morning as we closed the message on Daniel in chapter 3. Their enduring constancy. They were constant. Jesus is constant through the trials and the flames. And he's calling us to have this enduring constancy, this steadfastness that we would endure, this patient waiting. The Greek word is hupomone, which means to dwell under. It's the word that gets translated patient waiting, dwelling under, long periods of time sometimes. 
but we remain. We dwell under it. We have this enduring constancy. We run to win. We run the race to win. And if you get wearied, the verse that keeps coming back to me over and over again recently is the words of Jesus, I would that men ought always to pray and not to faint. To pray and not to faint. So as we close, thinking about the vision that Beth mentioned, thinking about what Ravenhill said about 120 people emerged from the upper room with the baptism in the Holy Spirit and they changed Jerusalem and pretty much changed the world. And we got 120 cities, 120 churches in a city that claim the same Pentecostal experience. And the city by large hardly knows that we're there. Do you want to change that? Do you want to change that? So I'm going to close with the end of this chapter from Raven Hill on this holy anger. And he says to us, to stir us sickly saints to rescue the perishing, we need the smell of hell. We need the smell of hell. It's okay to pray for that. It'd be okay to pray, Lord, break our heart for what breaks yours, but Lord, give us an awareness of the smell of hell. Let us know what that's like. Stir our hearts, Lord. We'll go out and reach people who are destined for an eternity in that place. Oh, to be like the blessed Redeemer, angry. More than ever, we need to cry with Mrs. B.P. Head. Now, I, I, I closed this chapter out the other night. I got so excited. She's going to, uh, he's going to quote a hymn from this lady. And the words of this hymn are fantastic. And I think they're so fitting for our church, and I think they're so fitting for the church today that I read this hymn and I got so excited and I wondered, I've never heard this hymn before. And I would venture that you haven't heard this hymn before. And I went out on the internet to find out information on it, and I came across an amazing version of this hymn. And at some point, we'd like to teach it to the church. So I'm going to read it to you tonight. And then as we close, we have, uh, we have the version that I found out on the internet because I'd like us to begin to get acquainted with it. And I'd like this to become a prayer. I sent it out to three or four people on uh, Wednesday night. I got so excited. I think it was, I don't know if it was Wednesday night, Tuesday night I was in here praying. Uh, there was somebody else that I wanted to call. I wanted to call Mary. So excited about it. I looked at the clock and I said, it was 9 o'clock. I said, well, I better wait till tomorrow. I don't want to call at 9 o'clock. But I was excited about this hymn. I hope you get excited about this hymn as well. It's, it's called O Breath of Life. And it says, O breath of life, come sweeping through us. Revive thy church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us, and fit thy church to meet this hour. That sound like something that we need? Amen. O wind of God, come bend us, break us, till humbly we confess our need. I heard that coming out tonight in the prayers as we were waiting on the Lord. Lord, we confess our need to you. We are needy people. Then in thy tenderness, remake us. Revive, restore, for this we plead. O breath of love, come breathe within us, renewing thought and will and heart. Come love of Christ afresh to win us. Revive thy church in every part.
O heart of Christ, once broken for us, tis there we find our strength and rest. Our broken, contrite hearts now solace, and let thy waiting church, thy waiting church be blessed. Revive us, Lord, is seal abating, while harvest fields are vast and white. Revive us, Lord, the world is waiting. Equip thy church to spread thy light. Father, I thank you tonight for your word, Lord. I thank you that you are stirring the hearts of your people now. Lord, I thank you that we feel this this urgency in our spirits, Lord. Lord, I pray you would continue to stir our hearts, impress upon us the urgency of the times, Lord. Each and every one of us, as we take our time to get before you, Lord, in the prayer closet, Lord, to come before you, Father, I pray that you would teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray, Lord. Teach us how to pray more, how to pray more effectively, Lord. Lord, that we would just approach you in our times of prayer, and Lord, that we would sit before you. And as we sit before you, Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us. Teach us how to pray, how to wait, Lord God, how to wait for you. I thank you for your precious spirit that was here tonight. I thank you for coming and breathing life into us tonight, Lord. Thank you for sending the rain upon the hearts of your people, Lord. Oh, Lord, how we we need you. How we desire your presence, Lord. Lord, as you bend us and as you break us, revive us, Lord, remake us. Father, may the words of this song resonate deep within us, Lord. May it become our prayer. We wouldn't just sing it here, Lord we would sing in our hearts throughout our walks of life. Lord, let us run the race with patience. Let us run it to win, Lord. We thank you. We praise you tonight in your name.